Hey, welcome everybody. This is Table Talk, your healthy theological radio addiction. My name is uh, Brent Kuhlman. I'm here with Adam Aline and Clint Poppy. We continue with our Lutheranism 101 series. We go to another chief part of the small catechism, and it's the fifth chief part. And of course, the fifth chief part is uh, confession and absolution in the office of the keys, which of course is living in and from your baptism. We continue then with that theme. You know, Clint, you were so concerned that we were going to talk more about baptism. Well, we are as we cover this fifth chief part, because as one is repented and confesses sins and then is faith through the giving of the absolution, well, guess what? You're living in and from your baptism into Christ Jesus. So you're, you're making progress in your Christian life when you're constantly being repented in faith. Uh, that's the victorious life, brothers and sisters, when the victory of Christ's Good Friday death reigns over you when he gives you the forgiveness of sins. <laughs> I, I believe you. Oh, uh, yeah. And it's also... I'm borrowing, you know, Joel Osteen's language and all these people, the victorious life. Well, yeah, there is a victorious Christian life, but it's in a way that no one ever thought. It's called, it's a cruciform life where the old Adam is put to death daily so that the new man spelled F-A-I-T-H lives before God in righteousness and purity. That would be Christ's righteousness and his purity. Uh, and that's baptism part four. Yeah. In Luther's small catechism, it sets the stage. Uh, before we get into the details, uh, I'm curious about the uh, historical um, information behind the fifth chief part of the catechism. Some people will say Luther did not write the fifth chief part of the catechism, or the fifth chief part of the catechism as we know it was not in the original edition of Luther's small catechism, and it was added later on. I am... Personally, I'm really ignorant with regard to this, and uh, if you if you guys have some some answers or some clarity on that, I would I would really appreciate that. Well, the office of the keys part uh, comes from Osiander in Nuremberg, but it was added, and Luther didn't object because it is the biblical teaching. Uh, we can say more about this at another time because I want to get to the biblical thing right now. Unless Adam is jumping at the bit to get in on this. <clears throat> no, I, I'm just along for the ride here. All right. Well, I'm w- here to make the show look good. I'm going <clears throat> to put that question off and the answer because I want to get to the biblical meat okay. here first. And then I'm, we can do I'm some I'm not going to let you move on until you, yeah, we'll get to it. until you appropriately answer that because inquiring minds want to know. Only a pastor would ask such a question. So we'll, we'll put the layman's questions first. Well, where is this stuff in the Bible? You know why layman would ask that question? Because of goofy little footnotes in their catechism. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And it puts doubts in their mind, yeah. and that's why I think it's important that we address it. It doesn't have to be today. Yeah, Some we'll, point we'll take time. care of it. The biblical teaching on confession and absolution is, is huge. You know, Clint, before we started recording today, you'd mentioned the Matthew 9 text, and you mentioned a CFW Walther sermon from that text, Matthew 9, when Jesus uh, not only heals the paralytic, but he forgives him his sins first. This is a remarkable text. Let's just go ahead and, and run with this. In Matthew, in Matthew chapter 9, the parallel, of course, is Mark 2. And uh, <laughs> I love this. Jesus uh, is in the house, and it's so jam-packed that uh, they can't get the paralytic in through the front door. So they've got to lower him in through the roof. Now, can you imagine? They, they had to tear the roof apart, probably, to get this job done. And, and the owner of the house is probably saying, you know, I don't have insurance for such a thing. So, you know, <laughs> quit, knock this off. <laughs> so, but, but there are friends who bring the paralytic to Jesus, and they drop him through the roof and set him plop down in front of Jesus. And, you know, think about it. If you're, if you're, if you're in the house listening to the Lord, and they drop this paralytic in front of all of you, 
And you, you expect Jesus to deal with this paralytic. You would expect him to first deal with his paralysis. <laughs> uh, he doesn't address that at first. Did you notice that, folks, in the text, if you've got Matthew 9 open or the parallel of Mark 2? Instead, Jesus says, be of good cheer, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, I think it's Matthew's account that has the be of good cheer, my son. You can double check it because I'm doing this off the top of my head. And that, that, there, that there tells us what the real dilemma is is that this man is not so much concerned about his paralysis, he's concerned about his situation before God because of his sin. And that's why Jesus says, be of good cheer, my son. Your sins are forgiven. So Jesus addresses the spiritual problem. And of course, uh, my goodness, when Jesus says such a thing, you know, the the experts and the, the Bible bigwigs and the experts in the church they're offended at this because who does this Jesus think he is, Adam? I mean, what are they, what are they implying with such a question? Well, that he's uh, blaspheming in the sense that uh, only God can forgive sins, and does Jesus think that he's God? What I think it's interesting is Jesus is actually, in a sense, just fulfilling the words of Psalm 32, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, uh, and even it goes on about your bones being wasted away and the hand of the Lord being heavy upon you and Christ is setting him free. Uh, and so you'd think if they knew their Bible better, they would... It would make more sense, you know. Look, he's lifted this burden off this man, and instead um, they accuse him of blasphemy, of, of thinking that he's God, which he is. So, <laughs> well, But, but the, the, uh, and I, I, don't, I don't want to turn this into a political segment, <laughs> but um, I, think, I think the political atmosphere, milieu that we live in right now teaches us that it is possible to hate something or someone so much that that completely clouds everything that you think, do, live, whatever. We see this in our politics today, how people are so consumed that they can't think rationally, they can't interact with their family or friends or even even go to a family meal or a family gathering. Because their hatred so consumes them. And I think that's the situation we need to remember with regard to the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the the people who were the religious swamp of that day. They hated Jesus so much that they couldn't even remember the Bible passages that they had quoted day after day, year after year, that they, that they had passed on to their children and their grandchildren. Their hatred consumed them. Uh, maybe I'm not being fair here, Pastor. Help, well, it could be. Help it could me be. out. It could very well be the case. They, they certainly did uh, dislike and they certainly did hate Jesus because of what he taught and who he claimed to be. So to, to piggyback on the language of today, they have Jesus derangement syndrome. There you go. Because Jesus claimed, see, uh, just, to, just, to, just to, to piggyback on this, when you read the New Testament, I think it's in the text. I don't have the, 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 the Bible verse in front of me, but double check. You guys have it open so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Is that what he says? Uh, I think he I, says that, doesn't he? You're looking it up, Moline. He says, um, so that you may know that the Son of Man see? has authority on earth to forgive Ma- sins. Matthew 9, 6. Okay, so see, there you have it. I'm glad I have this slightly memorized. See, everybody reads this text, and Clint, I think you're right to a certain extent to make Mark, this observation. Mark 2.10 also has that. The Son of Man. The Son of Man title. And, and we, we hear that language. See, Jesus 
identifies himself as the Daniel, son of man. Namely, Daniel prophesied, or Daniel was given the vision <coughs> of seeing the kingdom of God that would be on the earth and it would last forever. And he would be like one, like a son of man. And so Jesus is saying, I'm it. When he says, so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He <laughs> is saying, I'm it. And they don't like that because how can that be? Because we know you. We watched you grow up. You're just uh, Mary's boy and, and Joseph's boy. You, c- you cannot claim this. This is blasphemy to say such a thing. I think the authority part is a big part in Matthew's gospel as well because, you know, Matthew culminates with the uh, great commission where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And now go make disciples by baptizing, by forgiving their sins, by teaching them all that I've commanded you, including take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood. And so Jesus is establishing here that he has the authority to forgive sins so that in the last chapter of Matthew he can give that authority to the church to go out and to bring do, the do word. What he just said, yeah. Yes. And, yeah. And that's therefore where the pastor's authority is also uh, founded on. It's, you know, not because Pastor Coolman and Pastor Poppy are such smart, good-looking guys that you're able to forgive sins in a church service, but rather it's because Christ had that authority uh, and displayed that authority and now has given that authority to do that in churches here now on his um, on his terms, I guess, maybe is the way to say it. Yeah, yeah, and, and that, 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 of course, what you said is absolutely true, and that's getting ahead of the game. Uh, I'm not discounting it, it's, but we're going to get, we're going to say more about the authority of the pastor to do this. Right. Because that's just as scandalous, but that's another day. The, the uh, son of man title, I think, is very, very important. As you pointed out in Daniel, uh, the Son of Man title is a messianic, godlike title in the book of Ezekiel. And not just godlike, but it is a, a divine yeah, title. Divine title. Yes. In, in, um, in Ezekiel, it's just the opposite, where Ezekiel is called Son of Man, Son of man mm-hmm. by God, almost as a, who do you think you are? You're not God. You're the Son of Man. Mm-hmm. And when Jesus ascribes that title to himself, Son of Man, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that Jesus is teaching, every time he uses that title, the two natures of the Messiah, the two natures of Christ, that the Messiah would be both true God and true man at the same time. And when he does these miracles, he looks like a man, he acts like a man, he talks like a man, and he does the miracles that only God can do. Son of man, son of man. So what is he? Is he the son of man or is he the son of God? Yes, I think that's intentional. Absolutely. But these people, when they hear this in Matthew 9 and the parallel in Mark 2, when this man, and they all watched him grow up, when he says, be of good cheer, my son, your sins are forgiven. They all know that only God can do that. And so that's blasphemy. They They failed to believe that he is the one true God in the flesh, the Son of God. Um, Back to what uh, Adam said earlier. Um, uh, He brought up Psalm 32, Jesus fulfilling that. That's absolutely right, and more. So, for example, in Jeremiah 31, when God promises to make a new covenant with Israel, the new covenant includes this, that I will remember their sins no more. And this is precisely what Jesus is doing. Uh, Psalm 32, hooked with Jeremiah 31. And then you can push this further, which, of course, is ahead of the game, uh, when Jesus says this cup is the New Testament or the new covenant in my blood, 
<laughs> that that's given also given and shed for you yeah. for the forgiveness of sins. What's going on here? What's going on here in our Lord's ministry is He is doing what the Old Testament promised, what God's word said would happen, is that forgiveness of sins would be given to people. Uh, you remember in Matthew one twenty one. You will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, of course, is Yeshua. Uh, Jesus is the Greek of the Hebrew Yeshua, which literally means Yahweh saves. And so Jesus is the one. He is Yahweh saving his people. How? By saving them from their sins. And he does this in Mark 2 and in Matthew 9, even before he dies on the cross, because he has the authority to do this, you see. Because he is the Good Friday Savior, and he can do it. <laughs> uh, this is just magnificent. So, folks, if you're picking up what I was trying to begin with today is what we read in the Bible, and we're going we're gonna to read a lot more passages in the Bible, is that God is very concerned that he speaks a word of forgiveness to sinners. And he wants sinners to trust that word of forgiveness or absolution, we can call it. And this, when you trust that word of forgiveness from the Lord, this is what it means to live in, in and out of your baptism or in and from your baptism into Christ. Okay? So we're going to hear the music probably real quick. Ah, see, I guessed it just right. So we'll come back. We'll talk some more about this. We used to play outside when we were young and full of life and full of... You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. All right, welcome back, everybody, to Table Talk, your healthy theological radio addiction. The small catechism has six chief parts, and the fifth chief part is called confession. What is confession? And then it talks about what is the office of the keys. We just, we've just begun to give the biblical um, talking points about this. But, I mean, let's just go to the small catechism when it asks ask the question, what is confession? And the answer is confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins. And second, that we receive absolution. That's a spoken word of forgiveness, everybody, if you've never heard that word. So we receive absolution from who? From the pastor, as from God himself, not doubting, but firmly believing that by it, the it is the absolution, that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. Mark 2, Matthew 9, Jesus does this. He's speaking the absolution. And it, he is God. It's coming from God himself. Now, the catechism is dealing with a, a way that absolution can be spoken in the church to people. Now, there are three ways that absolution, can, or pardon me, there are three ways that you can confess your sins to God. One is to God directly, anytime, anywhere, any place, and asking him to forgive you based upon the fact that Jesus died for you and rose for you. So you can be riding in your car. You can be at school. Um, you can be washing the dishes. You can be loading the dishwasher, etc. You can be at work being a machinist. And, and you, can, you can, in your mind or with your mouth, all together with your heart saying, God, what I did today to my wife or what I said to her this morning when I got up was horrible. Please forgive me and forgive me for Christ's sake. That's, that's one way you can confess. As those who have memorized Luther's evening prayer, mm -hmm. Um, you're praying directly and Forgive to me God. all my sins where I have done wrong. That would be one example. Yeah. And this is commanded in Scripture, folks. 
you'd better be doing this. If you're not doing that, we need to sit down and talk. <laughs> so I hope that's helpful. There's another sphere, if you will, in which you can make confession, uh, and that's before one another. So the book of James in the New Testament tells us to confess our sins to one another. And so this is, this is also commanded in Scripture. You are to confess your sins to God, and you are also to confess your sins to one another. These are two ways that are uh, commanded in Scripture that you, you must do this. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to live in and from your baptism. And so when you confess your sin to one another, you expect to hear what from the other person that you've sinned against. It's okay. Yeah, that's the way your <laughs> wife talks, I'm sure. No problem. Yeah, that's not how you, you don't, it, because it wasn't okay. Or right. some, they might say, well, don't worry about it. Well, it, I worried about it a lot. So when you confess your sin to someone, you expect to hear the word of forgiveness. I forgive you. Jesus died for you. It's all, it's all forgiven. Okay? And these things are commanded. James remembers the half-brother of our Lord. He should know. <laughs> you know? He's, he, he knows. So again, to repeat there, I've talked about we confess our sins to God. You can do this anywhere, <coughs> anytime, any place. And you confess your sins to one another. And when you confess your sins to God anywhere, anytime, any place, you are confessing your sins and you, you ask God to forgive you because Jesus died for you and you believe that and you trust that. Now, the small catechism is dealing with another way that you can make confession, and that's before the pastor. And when you do that, you're also doing it before God. That's another way you can do it before God is before the pastor. And so when the small catechism asks the question, what is confession? And it says it has two parts. First, that we confess our sins. And second, that we receive absolution. That is forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself, not doubting, but firmly believing that by it, namely the absolution, our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. This is what the small catechism is dealing with. Or as the language is private confession and absolution or individual confession and absolution which is making a comeback in Lutheran churches all over the world and in the United States because it kind of fell out of disuse. But uh, thankfully, a lot of pastors are teaching this and people are saying, yeah, that's, I have a need for this and I, I, want to, I want to do this. And so pastor, why don't you sit down for a while? Why don't you be quiet? Sit up in front of the altar. You know, I, lo- I know how you love to talk, Poppy, but your people say, why don't you sit down for a minute, Pastor Poppy? Get your vestments on, sit in front of the altar, I've got something that's really bothering me. I want to confess it to God through you. And I want you to be God's mouth to speak his word of forgiveness to me so that I know my sin is forgiven for Christ's sake. Okay. These are three ways that you can do it. It's worth pointing out, and this is tangential, but since we said those words, three ways to do it, and there's two parts of confession, which is important because uh, it hadn't been that way necessarily in the church. There had been three parts, because you confess your sins, you receive absolution, and then you must make penance and uh, um, do particular things to receive that forgiveness from God that had been kind of the way things had been done. So that's important to point out here as well, that we, as in the Lutheran Church, do Two parts, not three parts. I'm going to refine what you said, Adam. Um, Thank you. <laughs> um, the three parts that uh, Luther grew up with, and it was the sacrament of penance. The three parts of the sacrament of penance, which, of course, was the second plank, because your baptism only counted for original sin. And now since you've sinned after your baptism, you've got to go to the sacrament of penance. So what were the three parts? It was contrition. Pardon me, yes. Confession of sin, and that would be all the mortal sins that you could confess or that you've done. And those are sins that would send you to hell. And then contrition, are you really sorry? 
and then would be satisfaction. Those were the three parts. Let me repeat it. Confession of all mortal sins, contrition, are you really sorry, and then satisfaction. And, of course, that's all revolving around you. And it didn't mean that the, the, the medieval church diminished or didn't leave out the absolution. It's just the most important part it was at the time of Luther was the contrition. That was the most important part. Uh, I'm glad you raised this because I'm going to speak more about this now. This is really important to talk about, in my opinion. Think about this, folks. At the time of the Lutheran Reformation, you would go to your priest for a private confession absolution. Usually, you'd only do it once a year, and you'd do it right before Easter. Okay? And uh, the most important part was contrition. Now, what happened in the medieval church, even in the 12th century, uh, and even before the 12th century, there, was the, there, were, there were people who said, and I'm talking about theologians in the Roman Catholic Church, who said, you know, the contrition is what works the forgiveness of sins. In other words, if you're sorry because you love God, and that was an important key, if you love God <laughs> and you're sorry, then you're already forgiven. Now, this caused a great controversy in the church because if, if contrition, if you're sorry, and that means you're forgiven, then what do you need the priest for? What is he, just chopped liver? And we have this thing called private confession absolution in the medieval church. So, so now, now what are you going to do? Well, here was the answer. The church, and I'm making a point in general here, okay? The church says, all right, yeah, we'll run with the, you know, if you're sorry, you're forgiven. So now what we're going to do is we're, you, we still want you to go to private confession and go talk to the priest. And his job now is to figure out whether your contrition, your sorrow, was real. And if it was real, he'd speak the absolution, not in the sense that now you're really forgiven, but, oh, yeah, you are. Yeah, your, your contrition, you were forgiven at that point. And so he kind of rubber stamped it, if you will. Okay. Now, this was a huge problem. With, with Luther and the Reformers because the Bible teaches none of this. God does not forgive you because you're sorry. Does he want you to be sorry? Sure he does. But that's not why he forgives you. God forgives you for Christ's sake, and that's it. It's the only reason. So, Lutheran Reformation, two parts to confession. And what's the most important part? Is, that, is it the confession or is it the absolution, it's Adam? The absolution. Because it's whose work? Christ's work. Yeah, that's his word, and it's his work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And any of you, if you want to read this, you can read the large catechism, and Luther makes this point over and over and over again. So the Lutheran Reformation comes along and says, you know what, we'll keep private confession absolution, but we're going we're gonna to reform it because we'll use it for the sake of people being able to hear the living voice of Christ. The Latin is viva vox Christi. Viva, you've all heard that with viva milk, you know. That's living, voice, vox, Christi, the viva vox Christi. When you hear the absolution, you're hearing the voice of Christ, just like in Matthew 9, just like in Mark 2. Now I have to say something about this because anybody who attends a church service, now I'm switching gears here, I've been talking about private confession, but, the, but we, have, we have in our hymnal, we have the opportunity to make a general confession and then hearing an absolution on a Sunday morning altogether. And so when you have visitors uh, at, at our congregations and the pastor says, in the stead and by the command of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, usually the guest will be horrified by this. And you have the same reaction that happened with Jesus in Matthew 9 and Mark 2. Who does this pastor think he is? God? 
Adam, do you think you're God? No. Uh, how about you, Clint? Do you think you're God? <laughs> uh, no, I was dozing. Yeah, I, was, I wasn't thinking about the answer. I was dozing. Of course not. Yeah. Of course so, not. So, Chief of sinners, though, I be. Right. So the pastor isn't God. So then why in the world would a pastor say such a thing so authoritatively and so categorically? Well, here's why. Because Jesus, and we're going to study this over the next few weeks, Jesus mandates that the forgiveness of sins be proclaimed in the church by pastors. And not just only pastors. We're just talking about that right now. By pastors. Matthew 16, Matthew 18, John 20, Luke 24, verse 47, on and on. But those are the main passages. And that goes back to where we began our show today, talking about the authority to forgive sins and being given to the church to have the pastors do that. Yeah. And let's not forget, folks. God is the God is the only forgiver. Did you hear what I just said? There's only one forgiver. It's God. Now let's not forget that God uses means, creaturely means to get this job done. So when the pastor who's been given the office of the holy ministry, part of his vocation, Matthew 16, Matthew 18, John 20, Luke 24, is to make sure that people hear Christ's forgiveness. And God is the one forgiving. Christ is the one forgiving through the creature's mouth. God always does this. He works through means. He works through creatures. Pa- Pastor, you I, one quick thing. Uh, you know, Pastor Moline brought up about the three-part confession and how horrific that is. What I see going on in our world today too often is a one-part confession. And I'm talking here about uh, the, the various ways that the... 12-step program has entered into our world. Okay. It's confession without absolution. Correct. Confession by itself is supposed to be somehow cathartic. Confession is good for the soul, that kind of a thing. Um, I think that is a classic example for us why God's Word extols the absolution it's not the confession that is the big thing. It is the absolution. Maybe you can touch on that. Well, I, on the one hand, with, with the uh, 12-step program, like with AA, when one of the steps is you confess fifth, to fifth, a higher power. Fifth steps. Okay. You confess to a higher power. On the one hand, what's left out, you've, you've made the observation, an absolution of forgiveness. Um, hopefully, hopefully, people in our congregations who are using this uh, 12-step program will come to their pastor and say, now, pastor, I want to confess. Now, will you, will you speak God's word of forgiveness? And then you'll have the opportunity. Now, on the other <coughs> hand, I, I give kudos to the 12-step program because at least, at least this is happening, that somebody's actually, uh, how shall I say this, acknowledging that there is a higher power who can help. <laughs> you know, that, even in the churches today, that's not even being taught. <laughs> the Protestant Sadly. churches. Yeah, Sadly. yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, man. Oh, well, folks, we've run out of time. There's a ton of meat left on this bone. So in the meantime, stay Lutheran, my friends. So hold my hand, I'll walk with you, my dear.